exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. A wise man once said, trusting God does not mean believing that he will do what you want. It means believing that what he does is good. Have you ever asked yourself why you're still here? It's a weird question, I admit. I don't mean in this building or in this town or in this state. But have you ever wondered why you are still on this planet? When I lived in Florida, I cared for my 94-year-old grandmother. And I remember that when I first got there, she would often wonder... I don't know what God still wants with me. I'm ready to go home. And even though Lois Callan certainly had more to complain about than I do, I've wondered from time to time, why am I still here? I mean, if the ultimate goal of the Christian life is for us to be with Jesus in heaven for eternity, then wouldn't it be nice that the moment someone became a Christian, they immediately went to be with Jesus? No trials. No temptations, no having to struggle and war with sin, no physical pain, no financial burden, no broken relationships, no having to deal with persecution and rejection and ridicule. I mean, think about it. Why are we still here? Surely God is powerful enough that he doesn't need us for his mission. He can do what he needs without us. So why are we here? The world is a difficult place to live, and it feels like it's getting more difficult and more hostile to live in every year, especially the part of the planet that we're in. So how should we live in this strange, ever-evolving, and dangerous place? Well, Christians had often responded one of two ways. The first way is to isolate ourselves from the world. I know many Christians who almost try to live their lives like monks with almost no contact with the outside world. Uh, I know that when I was in Bible college and seminary, it would have been very easy to just cut off completely from any contact with any non-Christian. In her book on evangelism, Out of the the Salt Shaker, Rebecca Pippert, in a lighthearted way, speaks to Christian college students about how they sometimes act as if God ought ought to have taken them out of the world. Um, This is what she said. We must not become, as John Stott puts it, a rabbit hole Christian. The kind who pops his head out of a hole, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning, and scurries to class only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by, an odd way to approach a mission field. Thus he proceeds from class to class. When dinner comes, he sits with the Christians in his dorm at one huge table and thinks, what a witness. From there, he goes to his all-Christian Bible study, and he might even catch a prayer meeting where the Christians pray for the non-believers on his floor. But what luck that he was able to live on the only floor with 17 Christians. Then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe. He made it through the day, and his only contact with the world were those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. What a reversal of the biblical command to be salt and light in the world. I think this is even a danger. If you're, I love those who are faithful here, but if your only interaction with other people is Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, and then other Christian activities, that is a real danger for us. The other way Christians deal with the world is often by imitating the world. Uh, it's easier to go with the flow. 
than to stir the pot. So little by little, you make compromises until there's hardly a difference between you and the world. But today in John chapter 17, we're going to find the biblical way that we are called to live in this world. So if you haven't already, please turn to John chapter 17. And while you're turning, let me remind you that trusting God does not mean believing that he will do what you want. It means believing that what he does is good. And in John 17, we're going to get a picture of how and why we are to survive in this world. Because my prayer for us this morning is that we would not seek to isolate ourselves or imitate the world, but that we would infiltrate the world the way that Jesus has called us to. Because in John 17, verses 6 through 19, we're going to find two prayers of Jesus. Two prayers of Jesus. The first prayer of Jesus is this. Jesus prayed that believers would be secure. We'll find that in verses 6 through 12. Secondly, Jesus prayed that believers would be sanctified. We'll find that in verses 13 through 19. Jesus prayed for believers that they would be secured and sanctified. A few weeks ago when I approached John 17, I said, I can do that in one chapter and one Sunday. That'll be no problem. And you guys know that last week we only got through five verses and we had to stop. And, and this Sunday is, or this week as I was preparing, I'm like, we're going to finish the chapter. And then there was just too much depth. Just to remind you that um, Thomas Manton spent 45 Sundays in John 17. So we're going very quickly. But I, I think that this passage is incredibly deep. Um, incredibly powerful and speaks into our church in a, in a really wonderful way. So I'm excited to dive into these two prayers. Um, so let's pray and, and we'll, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as those who are in the world, but not of the world. We feel so disconnected with the people and the places around us and we want to be home but we also want to submit to your will. So Lord, as we study your word and as we open the scriptures, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And may the sermon that is preached be far better uh, than the one that I prepared. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look with me to verses 6 to 9. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We'll stop right there. Last week, we just looked at the first five verses, and in those first five verses, we heard two prayers from Jesus to start off with. There's six things that he asked for in total, so we're taking two a Sunday. And in that first part of this prayer, he, he prayed, Father, glorify me in the cross and glorify me in your presence. I'm, I'm summarizing, of course, but that's what we studied last Sunday. And then in verse 6, Jesus turns his attention from himself and his own glory to his people. He says in verse 10 that he's not praying for the world, but for all those whom the Father has given him. And I know that verse alone rubs people the wrong way because why on earth is Jesus not praying for everyone? Doesn't Jesus love everyone? Oh, well, of course, Jesus absolutely loves all people, every individual person. 
But within the scripture, there's a deeper truth that Jesus has a particular love for his people, for his church. So, for instance, I I love all the women of this church. I, I really do. But I don't love my wife the same way I love the other ladies of this church. I've got a special particular love for my bride. And the same goes with Jesus and his bride, the church. And one of the ways he expresses that love is through this prayer and other prayers. Another way is is how he has spoken to the church. So for instance, the beginning of verse 6, when Jesus says, He has manifested the Father's name to us. He means that he has revealed God the Father to us. That through his teachings, his miracles, even in the way that he just exists in his person. Jesus' entire life and existence was an act of explaining what God the Father is like. Just remember a couple chapters ago when Philip asked Jesus and he says, Lord, let us see the Father. And what does Jesus say in response? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. See, Jesus wasn't simply some great moral teacher. He wasn't merely another prophet in a long line of prophets. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. One in essence with the Father. And through Him, all things which were made, were made. Through Jesus, God created the world and he made mankind and everything he made was good and he gave man one rule and man rebelled against God and broke that rule. And since then, sin has spread to all of us like a cancer. So not only do we carry the condemnation that Adam bought for all of us, but also we follow in his footsteps, rebelling against God's rule and authority, pretending to be our own gods and disregarding what God declares to be good and right. We do it when we lie. We do it when we're jealous of one another. We do it when we lose our tempers, when we gossip, when we even treat one another unkindly, or a million other things that we do that all show that in our heart we have this rebellion within us that exposes the fact that we are sinners. And because God is good, he will judge us for our sins. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to save his people from their sins. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived the sinless life that no man had ever lived before. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He died, was buried, and then rose from the grave on the third day. He was our perfect sinless sacrifice on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin and making the way for us to be forgiven. That's why even the high priests in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, what they would do is they'd go into the temple and they'd offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And then they would pray on behalf, one prayer, a prayer to forgive Israel. And so Jesus steps into his high priestly role, but he reverses it. He offers the prayer first and then he offers the sacrifice next. And that's why when Jesus came, he was constantly calling men to repent of their sins and believe in him. Verse 3, this is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus, his Messiah. He was constantly preaching for 16 chapters so far that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And this is what the disciples have believed. They believed his teaching. And listen, if you're not a Christian in this room right now, and you repent of your sins in this moment and put your faith alone in Jesus, then he will forgive all your sins, past, present, and future. Amen? Amen? Jesus came here to reveal the Father to all that the Father had given him. But of course, that raises the question, who did the Father give to Jesus? Clearly not everyone was given to Jesus because in verse 9, we hear Jesus explicitly say, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me. So who is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think it's clear. You look at verse 8, he's talking about believers. Jesus says, all the Father gave him. Um, They believed in Jesus' words. They came to know the truth. They have believed. But those are the characteristics of those who have been given by the Father to the Son. Um, However, even though they are believers, they definitely did not begin as believers. Verse 6, all the, the Father had given Jesus, they were a part of the wicked world. But they were also gods, and God chose to give them to Jesus out of the world. And as a result, they heard Jesus' message, and they believed it. Remember even in John 15, what Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Before these disciples believed, before they were called by Jesus, before they even knew his name, God had chosen to give these 11 men to Jesus. And not only these disciples, but Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says that if you are a Christian, God the Father chose you in Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. That in love, he decided in advance to adopt us as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That that phrase, in love, in this controversial passage is so glossed over. That to be chosen by God is an act of God's love. And we see the language of God's loving choice all over this passage. And of course, I realize at this point, some of you are already squirming in your seats. Because, wait a minute, Pastor. If God chooses people, does that mean that we don't have free will? Of course we have free will. Look at verse 6. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept their word. God chose to give them to Jesus, and the disciples chose to keep Jesus' word. How is that possible? And once again, honestly, I have no idea. Both are true. You can see both truths being taught side by side in verse 6, that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation, And man is absolutely responsible for his actions. He's responsible to respond to the gospel call. This is some incredibly deep stuff. And I know people have a really hard time living with these two truths that are clearly presented in the Bible again and again. So let me try to help out. I found this to be a really helpful exercise. Let me ask you, who wrote the gospel of John? John. John. That's, that's a good answer. You would think the gospel of John. That, that makes sense. But let me ask some of the ones who answered. Did not God, by the Holy Spirit, write the book? Right. So which is it? If you have to pick one, is it God or is it John? God. I think that, you know, you want to pick God. However, doesn't John write his gospel differently than Luke? Doesn't he write very differently than like Moses? Yeah. Or, 
you see this in the scriptures very clearly that God did not turn John into a robot so he could write down exactly what he wanted. But at the same time, God inspired John by the Holy Spirit to write down exactly what he wanted him to write. So who wrote the Gospel of John? Was it God or was it John? And the answer is yes. It's not even a half-half cooperation that, that God wrote the book entirely, but John also wrote the book entirely. Or, or in other words, if you look at Second Peter chapter 1, it tells us this. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They both wrote the book. You you see the personalities of the different authors that I believe John, with his own free will, chose every word in the Gospel of John. How does that work? Not a clue. Total mystery. But the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And, And here's my point. God is totally sovereign over salvation and man is totally responsible for his actions that I believe without a doubt that back in 2007, I chose to follow Jesus with my own free will. I responded to the gospel call and I was justified. I was, I believed and I was saved, but I also know that if he had never chosen me, then I would have never come. And if you're a Christian in this room, the language that that John is using, you were a gift from the Father to the Son. Why did he choose you? Well, verses 10 through 12. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And and here's the point. Whether you realized it or not, if you are a believer, then you are God's gift to Jesus, because God is glorified in the saving of sinners. How do you know if you were given by the Father to the Son? Do you believe? I heard of a story one time of a man who went up to a pastor who was really troubled by this doctrine. He says, if God chooses people, why should I come to him? Maybe he hasn't chosen me. So the preacher said to him, I know God has chosen you because if you repent right now of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, then you'll be saved and he has chosen you. And then the, the man with the problem said, well, I'm not so sure I want to do that. And the preacher said, well, maybe he hasn't chosen you. <laughs> We don't know the inner workings and plans of God and, and that in this problem, when we, we talk about God choosing people, clearly a biblical concept, and Spurgeon even had this idea that, that he said, you know, if we knew exactly who God chose and he, he put a yellow stripe on the back of every person's back who was going to believe, then we would go around London, we'd pull at the back of their shirts and we'd give the gospel to all the people with the yellow stripe. But we have no idea. So we preach the gospel to all And all who respond, we know are chosen. It's a difficult concept. I I know this, this is hard subjects. But all of it is pointing to this fact that, that Jesus has given us to glorify him as an act of love and grace. 
That's why Jesus is so determined to pray for his believers because it's through them that he's going to receive the glory. And in verse 10, it clearly gives us a picture of Jesus' equality with the Father. Do you see that? All are mine and they are all his. You got this language? The only way for the Father and Son to have equal ownership of these believers is if the Father and Son are equal to one another. It's because they are. This sounds almost identical to John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. So look, look, at, look at John 17, 10 through 12, and listen to this from John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It seems like in verses 10 through 12 of John 17, Jesus has turned that promise from chapter 10 into a prayer. Uh, In verse 11, Jesus is saying, hey, I kept these sheep while I've been on earth, but I'm leaving, so continue to keep them. And naturally, if, if you're reading the story, someone might say, well, what about Judas? Judas seems like you lost him. But in verse 12, Jesus makes it very clear. He did not lose Judas. But in fact, Judas's betrayal was even a part of the grand plan of the gospel. You see, we are so dependent on God holding on to us, and we really have no clue that if God were not holding on to me tonight, I'd lose my salvation. That this picture here of, of God holding on to us is a picture of a father who's holding the hand of their toddler as they walk on a sidewalk. Imagine a father and a son walking hand in hand along Route 8. And if that child's safety is dependent on how well the child holds the father's hand, then he's in real danger. But if his safety is dependent on how well his father holds his hand, then there's hardly a safer place. In the words of R.C. Sproul, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. We see in verses 10 through 12, one of the ways that Jesus holds on to us, he holds on to us by his prayers. Did you you know that not only did Jesus pray here in John 17, but after he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is praying right now for you, believer. He is praying right now for all who the Father has given him. And let me tell you that he is not going to cease praying until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Amen, somebody. And notice why Jesus is praying for the Father to keep us. Look look back at verse 11. Because I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 11, we hear Jesus ask the Father for something unbelievable. Father, keep them that they may be one even as we are one. One as they are one? Is that even possible? What does Jesus mean when he asks that the church be one as he and the Father are one? Well, first off, this obviously doesn't mean that we become divine like Jesus and like the way that the Father is divine and we become little gods in his little God mansion. This doesn't mean that the church somehow becomes the new fourth member of the Trinity. But rather, Jesus is asking that we, as Christians, were called to mirror the unity of the triune God. Just like earlier, Jesus commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. He does not mean that we are to literally die for every person in this room. 
There have been times in history where Christians have been called to literally die for their brothers and sisters in the faith. And if that time comes, you know what to do. But mostly throughout Christian history, Jesus means that we are to mirror the love that he displayed on Calvary for one another. And so Jesus is praying that the church would see the absolutely selfless love between the Father and the Son, and that we would mirror that love when we see displayed within the Godhead. The Father never gossips about Jesus behind his back. He never speaks poorly of him. He never deserves him. He never tires of glorifying him and loving him and serving him. That's where even in the glory of the Trinity, as each member is receiving glory, the the Son is never glorifying himself. He's always glorifying the Father and the Spirit. That everything the Trinity does that we talked about last week is totally and completely selfless. Now let me ask this question. Was Jesus' prayer that we would be one, was that prayer answered? And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, then you're probably thinking, it seems like Jesus' prayer was not answered. If you've been involved with organized religion for long, you've probably realized that many churches are one, not like Jesus and the Father so much, but more like the Roman gods model for heavenly unity, always warring and fighting with one another. But here's something you need to understand, Christian. Jesus died to establish unity among his people. It has already been done that in Christ there is neither male nor female nor slave nor free nor Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ. That's a reality because of his death. The question is not, are we unified? Christ has already established our unity as believers. The question now is, will you recognize your unity with other believers and walk in that reality? Listen, church, you have more in common with any believer in this building than any non-believer in the world. You think of any Christian who you disdain. Think, think of the Christian right now, that, that the, your least favorite Christian in all the world you will be closer to that brother or sister in heaven than you are with the closest person that you are here on earth. That's a reality. We're going to talk more and more about the unity next week because that's a big theme that he's going to pray for all who will believe to be unified. Um, But before we just leave that on, let me say this. The Father did not give you to Jesus. Jesus did not die for you. And the triune God does not preserve you now so that you can despise one another. The Father gave you to Jesus. Jesus died for you and the triune God preserves you now so you can love one another and be unified. And Jesus is praying that you would persevere to that end so that you may be one with your fellow church members and your local body. I think the principle applies for all Christians, but I think the emphasis is really on the believers within your life. I mean, it's easy to be unified with someone in Michigan, right? It's hard to be unified with the people in the next pew over. That's difficult. And that's Jesus' first prayer, that that believers would be secure in their salvation so that they may be one. But Jesus' second prayer in this section is this, that believers would be sanctified. What do I mean by sanctified? Well, look with me to verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now that's an astounding verse right there. Why should you read Jesus' words 
at least in part, so that his joy may be in you. Do any of you have a problem with viewing Bible reading as a burden? If we're being honest, most of us probably share that struggle. But in the words of Jesus, he says, life and fullness of joy is in the scriptures, is in his words. And if you don't believe me, keep reading. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And stop right there. Jesus reminds us that all disciples of Christ will be persecuted. Now, if I could have written the next verse, if I could have written the next line after verse 14, my gut would have led me to write this. Therefore, Father, spare them from the persecution. Therefore, take them out of the world, far away from its temptations and difficulties. But that's not what Jesus prays. Look with me to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He does in this verse pray for our protection against the devil, but he specifically does not ask for us to be taken from the world. He asks to to keep us in the world. Why? We'll keep reading verses 16 through 19. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There are real dangers in this world, namely the evil one, the devil, Satan himself. And we as Christians, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It doesn't look like the movie The Omen or anything that really Hollywood produces with all its scary effects, but but in your wage against sins and your, your doubting of your own salvation and the struggles that you go through, I mean, there are spiritual forces at play. The Bible says that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And that's even why this community is so important for the individual Christians. The, the famous preacher D.L. Moody was visiting a prominent Chicago citizen when the idea of church membership and involvement came up. The man told Moody, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside of it. Moody said nothing. Instead, he moved to the fireplace, blazing against the winter outside, removed one burning coal and placed it on the hearth. The two men sat together and watched the ember die out. Eventually, the other man feebly said, I see. That's why our unity within the church is so important. This is why love for one another is so important. That there are dangers and temptations and trials in this life. But Jesus has sent us on a mission. Uh, He was the first missionary from heaven, leaving the glories of heaven to come the earth. And in the same way, he leaves us here, even though we don't belong in this world, to witness to this world. And that's why Jesus prays, not for escape, but for sanctification. To be sanctified means to be holy or to be set apart. So sanctification is that process where we grow in holiness and we become less like the world and more like Jesus. So so notice that the key to sanctification, verse 17, it's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. It's the word of God. 
You see, if you go out into the world, but you're not being sanctified internally by the truth, you're going to become just like the world. Think often about Psalm 119 that David asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer, by hiding your word in his heart. One of the primary tools we have for fighting sin and Satan and growing in holiness and for getting joy is the word of God. But listen, we're not just sanctified so that we can sit home alone and think about these things. We're not just set apart from sin. We're set apart for mission. I've never prayed more than whenever I go out on a mission trip or go out to do evangelism. And it's that nervous awkwardness and, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just relying on the Lord's for strength. I, I'll tell you even, I've never prayed more than whenever I became the pastor of this church. And I still need work. I still need a lot of work. But I consider our community a mission field that needs to be reached. And I also feel the burden, the responsibility to pray for all of you individually by name. The trials of this world and difficulties in life is actually a source of sanctification growing you. And when we're actively engaging with the word in our hearts and with the world out there, the world puts the pressure on you and forces you to grow as a believer and depend on God's in ways you wouldn't expect. So even though it's not my first choice, Jesus has his reasons for leaving us here. That's my prayer this morning was that you would not seek to isolate yourself from the world or imitate the world, but that you would infiltrate the world with the gospel. Because in John 17, 6 through 19, we found two prayers of Jesus. He prayed that the church would be secure in their salvation and that they would be sanctified or holy. And it's by these two prayers that we'll discover what it means to be in the world, but not of it. So let me ask, is there any chance you've been living your Christian life like this? Have you possibly isolated yourself from the world? Have you maybe even possibly gone out with the world and been influenced by the world and slowly and slowly you become more and more like the world so that your salt loses your saltiness? Well, I've got three pastoral charges for you, three ways that we can apply this text and be in the world but not of it. I'd say first, number one, pray to Jesus as your high priest. Pray to Jesus as your high priest. He came with the message that he is the only way to be saved. He prayed right now to honor, that the Father would honor his sacrifice, that he could give eternal life to all those who believe. And then he made right by his sacrifice, suffering in the place of sinners, drinking the cup of God's wrath that we rightly deserved. So now if anyone turns from their sins and trusts in the cross, they'll be saved. And Jesus will pray for you all the way home to heaven. And that's the promise of the gospel. So pray to Jesus as your high priest. Second pastoral charge. Pray like Jesus. Uh, J.C. Ryle once said, He who loves me most loves me in his prayers. And that you see the heart of Jesus for you as the believer, you as his bride, that he brings you before the Father and is praying you all the way home. And that in that great example of Christ, who are you praying for? Do you have people in mind that you're praying all the way to heaven? And I think even in this prayer, we see priorities revealed. Is Do you ever pray to persevere? Do you ever pray, Lord, help me make it to the end? Lord, help me resist this temptation. Help me resist the evil one. 
In your prayers, I mean, praying for your health is great, but do you ever pray for holiness and sanctification? Use Jesus' prayers to realign your priorities of how we should be praying. So number one, pray to Jesus as your high priest. Number two, pray like Jesus. And then finally, seek to be in the world, but not of the world. And that number one, let scripture be your foundation for everything. That the quickest way to a dead heart is ignoring scripture. Not taking it in daily. Not dedicating your life to it. Um, And then also as you go out, don't be afraid to interact with the world. Don't be afraid of persecution or trials. Don't be afraid to be around people who aren't exactly like you. Of being in situations that, that may be strange to you. Uh, a number of years ago, codfish became a very popular choice of fish in the United States, and demand skyrocketed. The problem is, is that when they're shipped from the Pacific Northwest, they tried to freeze them and then ship them, but they found that after they were frozen, they tasted terrible. So they tried to ship live codfish, and then they would cook the fish on site, but the problem was the fish would be mushy by the time that they got to the plate. So they realized what the problem was. They put the codfish's natural enemy in the tanks with the codfish, the catfish, and all the way from the northwest in live tanks as they're traveling across the country, the catfish will chase and persecute the codfish all the way to your plate. And, and it's that stress, it's that chase that actually keeps the codfish firm so that they're nice and delectable when it's time to cook. You see, the world needs you to tell them about Jesus, but you also need the world. Otherwise, you'll just get fat and lazy and mushy. But if you get chased around a little bit, it'll actually work to sanctify you and draw you closer to Jesus. So in the words of the Apostle James, rejoice, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. And so on that note, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom, which is far above ours. Lord, we praise you for the sacrifice of Christ, and we're grateful for the plan of Christ, that even in times we don't understand, that doesn't make sense, it's not what we would have chosen, that you are good in your plan. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.